Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed Himself through Scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant Word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly, and pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. If you'd open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 12. This morning, drawing a lot of information and inspiration from Daniel Aiken's book, his commentary on the book of Revelation, uh, Matt Chandler, some of his comments on specifically this chapter and chapter 12 we're going to be looking at, which is so difficult because we have finally gotten to the place of war in the book of Revelation. There's been a lot of uh, signs and symbols and uh, visions of heaven and the church and other things going on, but now it's just war. And there are times when our hearts feel that tension. We, We feel that battle that is raging, not just around us, but sometimes in us. And I loved uh, one of the quotes from Daniel Aiken's book, his book, Christ-Centered Exposition, Exalting Jesus in Revelation. Uh, He quotes another author, Eugene Peterson. Many of you are familiar with him uh, as the guy who put the uh, paraphrase, the message Bible together. He was also a Bible scholar who just passed away here in the last couple years. Like with a lot of people, he had some stuff at the end of his life that I really disagreed with. Really. In fact, enough where if Eugene Peterson was alive and speaking in town tonight, I would probably encourage you to not go see him. Right? Are you tracking with me? And yet, though I disagree with him, he was right on this. Listen to these words. Concerning our text, Eugene Peterson says this, This is not the nativity story we grew up with, but it's the nativity story all the same. Peterson was right. There's no baby in this manger. There's no shepherds rejoicing or wise men bringing gifts and worshiping, but there are angels, yet they're not singing. They're fighting. Rather, engaged in heavenly war of eschatological proportions. No, in this Christmas story, there is a beautifully clothed woman, a male child, a son, and a fiery red dragon who stands ready to devour, to eat the son who's going to shepherd the nations. This is an apocalyptic Christmas story. Christian, if we don't re-see our world, especially Christmas is an easy one because it's, it comes so prepackaged and handed to us, just delivered to us uh, with a nice little bow on it. Uh, this is what you're supposed to do at Christmas. This is what you're supposed to think at Christmas. And yet Christmas reminds us that there is a very real war going on, that God himself had to be incarnate, put on flesh to dwell among us, that he might deal with our sin, that he might triumph once and for all over every power of evil on this earth. This is a poetic glimpse. All of Revelation, it's written in a style of poetry from that day that used symbols and images, not so that we could figure out what the symbol and image are, so that we could feel the message. It's like singing a song. Guys, you could, you could look to your wife, you could look to your girlfriend, and you could tell her that you love her. You could tell her what you think of her and how you feel about her, but it just comes off different when you sing it. And for some of you, it comes off different when you turn on the radio and play it because you're like, if I sing, it's over. Right? So I, I, I don't know where you're at with that. That's the idea of the book of Revelation. Sometimes we, we get this one so wrong. Just think about it with me here. We, we talked about this at the beginning of this study. Uh, we, we get it wrong because we're like, we have to figure out what each thing is, what it means, how it's all going to work out. Then we put it on our chart. Have you noticed that all of these different people through centuries have had all these charts and they never agree with each other? They're all different. I would say that's because we're doing this completely wrong. If we believe in the perspicuity of Scripture, in other words, Scripture is understandable, it's knowable, that we should not be coming up with the opposite answers all the time. 
And by the way, in case you are one of those people, uh, the Black Hawk helicopter should never factor into your reading of the book of Revelation. So rather than looking uh, for the identity, which is not what John was uh, writing, it's not what the people in that century would have thought or looked for or understood, uh, we should feel the weight of what he is saying. We should feel the emotion of what he is saying. And this chapter starts with two signs. Two significant signs. In fact, if you wanted to sum this chapter up, I, I think it was Matt Chandler who said it like this. It's, it's two signs and a scheme. We'll, we'll get to the scheme a little bit later on. Look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. And a great sign appeared in heaven. Uh, guys, what does a sign do? The, a sign is not the thing you're looking for. It points you to what you're looking for. You with me? This is why if we just read the book of Revelation and try and figure out what all these things are, we're actually focusing on the sign and missing the Grand Canyon. You're tracking with me. Let's not do that. There was a great sign that appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. The first sign is a woman. Now the simplest, the easiest In fact, if you're Roman Catholic, the only interpretation of this for them is this is Mary, the Virgin Mary, the the mother of Jesus. This is the Christmas story. And I would agree and say uh, they are right. In fact, most commentators will agree on some level and say they're right. I would just say it's not just that. Clearly, Jesus is the son of this woman. This, This woman who... Uh, is dressed slightly different from every picture of Mary that you've ever seen, right? clothed with the sun. I, I don't go anywhere near the sun, and I get horribly, horribly sunburned. I don't know how she, how she wrapped an entire star around herself. Again, this is poetic language, all right? Are you with me? Jesus is the sun. He, he's the one uh, who will rule the nations. The Greek there is actually will shepherd the nations. Uh, we find uh, in... Revelation chapter 12, just look down a few verses here in verse 5. says, She gave birth to a male child who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. This one is one of the simplest explanations of what something means in the book of Revelation. This is clearly... Christ. There are echoes back from Revelation chapter 2. Uh, you can go back and read that. Matthew chapter 2 verse 6 where it talks about out of Bethlehem this promise of the Messiah of Christ's birth. Matthew chapter 2 verse 6, out of Bethlehem will come a ruler. That's in the New Testament. Reach back into the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 2 verse 9 says, you will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. Talking about uh, the Messiah's coming rule over the nation. This was again and again a promise of what it's going to look like when Messiah King comes to rule. We know it's Jesus because you fast forward uh, internally in this book of Revelation to chapter 19 where it's talking specifically about Christ and it says this, uh, chapter 19 verse 15, and from his mouth proceeds a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. Same language. He treads the winepress of the fury and the wrath of God the Almighty. I had to think about that verse a little bit uh, in this last couple weeks because we, a few years ago, we planted uh, some grapevines in our backyard. Uh, McKay and Cody, when they bought their house, inherited a, a large string of Concord Uh, grapevines that Tim's grandpa had planted there and we got four gigantic buckets of grapes anybody ever pick grapes anybody ever squashed grapes before we literally we did this because we we thought it would be cool we got we had this big giant uh tin tub that we put them in washed previously and then Daniel gets in and just starts stomping on them just, you know, and you're like, oh, yeah, I mean, this looks like one of those videos out of Italy or something like that. Only, do you know what happens when you stomp on a grape? It's, yeah, it's sort of like this self-contained thing until you squash it and it explodes. That's how it describes the wrath of God. That's how it describes Jesus and his interaction with nations that reject him, he will stomp on them until he squashes them and they explode. 
Like, this is graphic when you actually think about it. That's the picture of this baby born in a manger. This is why this is not uh, this prepackaged Christmas story that we have become so accustomed to. But because this is so clearly a description of Christ, we can now work a little bit backwards to this woman. So again, uh, Catholic theologians will say this is Mary, and we'll agree, but we, we won't stop there. On her head, uh, she has these uh, 12 crowns. You, you have authority that is coming because all that led up to Mary was the people of Israel. God's chosen people, these 12 tribes that God had given uh, to rule, that he had uh, imparted knowledge of himself. And he said, you are my chosen people among all the peoples of the earth. So we could, we could look through this woman and see all of Israel, all of God's plan up to history. But we don't just stop there because that scene sort of pivots. And on the other side of the birth of Christ, now we have the birth of the church with the 12 apostles who have come. This is all of, in this woman, we we have not only Mary, but all of God's people in the past and all of God's people in the present and the future contained within the church. This is God's people. And I I love, uh, and we've said this a few times, as we read the book of Revelation, we want to be really careful not to make our charts, not to make our timelines, because I love that he takes the entire life of Christ and distills it down to one verse. Uh, look with me, if you would, at verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. The heads would symbolize power and authority. Uh, ten horns, uh, again, his head had seven diadems. So the, the heads, the crowns, power and authority to rule. Uh, the horns also symbolized authority. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule the nations with an iron rod, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God. Sometimes we think about the wilderness as being a dark and lonely place as opposed to this is a place of refuge that God has created where she will be nourished for 1,260 days. Again, the imagery could not be any clearer. This dragon is Satan. He's going he's gonna to say that explicitly. If you look down at verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil. By the way, the, the word devil there is a word you may be familiar with, but you've probably heard it in Spanish, uh, diabolos. It means the slanderer or accuser. So anytime you see the word devil, it actually means that the accuser, the slanderer. The devil and Satan. Satan just means enemy there. The deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. This is the same imagery that we get back in Genesis 3. This crafty serpent who deceives Adam, who deceives Eve, and God curses the snake. Which is a beautiful connection. As we look at this war going on in heaven between God's angels and the devil and his angels, it is good to be reminded that God said absolutely at the beginning of the human race, here's what's coming. And, and in that Genesis 3, so Genesis 1 and 2, God makes a perfect world. right? You remember the book of Genesis? If you don't, as soon as we get done with Revelation, uh, we're going to spend about a year and a half going through Genesis So Genesis 1 and 2, God makes a perfect world and says it's good. God makes uh, all the things that we see around us and says it's good. He makes the animals, says it's good. He makes mankind and he says, this is very good. This is man, this is woman made in my image. So we have Adam and we have Eve. And then comes Genesis 3. Like we made it all the way to two chapters in the Bible before we ruined everything. Like well done us. So in comes this serpent, in comes this dragon in snake-like form, Satan himself, right at the beginning. And yet with him we get what theologians call the proto-evangelion. So the word for gospel is evangelion, and we get the the first prototype, the first glimpse that this is coming in Genesis 3 verse 15. In God demonstrating his perfect control over man and his sin, over Satan and his temptation. He says in verse 15, I will put enmity 
between you and the woman, between Satan, the snake, the serpent, the dragon, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he looks all the way through time and looks to uh, that woman. All of God's people that we saw culminating in Mary, culminating in the birth of Jesus. He says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Christian, why does Satan hate you? Have you ever wondered that? Why do we, oh man, the devil is, devil's against me. God, just got to pray more. Got, got to do whatever, you know, but I, I know I'm just under attack. Number one, I, I think we say that wrongly most of the time. Here's why we suffer most of the time. We're stupid. Here's why we suffer most of the time. We're sinful and we love it. All right, so before you go saying, oh, I'm under attack, the devil's picking on me, let's start with the I'm stupid conversation, all right? That's just, it's all of us. We're on the same boat. Look at the person next to you and go, it's me too. Don't even worry about it. All right, it's all of us. And yet, why does, why does, when we back up, like from our own sinful stupidity, why is it actually true that the, the enemy of your soul is just that, the enemy of your soul? Why is Satan against you? It goes all the way back to Genesis 3. It is actually the offspring of this woman, the offspring of God's people, the offspring. We have been made sons and daughters of the King of Kings, brothers and sisters uh, with Christ, our elder brother. Because we are in Christ, the enemy hates us. Oh, but there's this promise of God's power, God's redemption, that Christ himself will crush his head. Now we fast forward into the book of Revelation in chapter 12. And we, we see encapsulized all of Christ's life in just this one moment. And this woman's about to give birth to this son. And where is this dragon? He is standing ominously, crouching, waiting for this child to be born that he might devour him. Isn't it interesting? We look in Jesus' life as he was getting ready to be born. The dragon stood in the shadows waiting to devour. Inspiring people like King Herod to say, uh, we want to exterminate this son before he can be born, before he can be king. And so let's kill every male child in Israel who is two years old and under. Standing ready to devour. But look at verse 5 here in Revelation 12. But he was caught up to God and to his throne. This is amazing to me. We, we have four books in, in the beginning of your New Testament, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that in just a glimpse tell the story of Christ's life and ministry. And Revelation boils it down to one verse. He's born, he's caught up to God and to the throne. We see that in Jesus' birth as King Herod stands with the dragon looming behind him to destroy and devour this child that he is caught up into Egypt. He is taken out into the wilderness and delivered and saved. We see this at the end of Jesus' life here on earth in his death and resurrection as he is caught up in the ascension into heaven where he waits and one day will come again. Again, the book of Revelation is not a timeline, otherwise none of that fits, because both of those things are true at the same time. In the moment of Jesus' birth, he was delivered, and in the moment of his ascension, he was taken up into heaven as well. If you want more convincing proof that this is not a timeline, look at the fall of Satan and his angels. Verse 9 tells us, uh, this dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of all the world, was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. This would almost seem, if you read Revelation as a timeline, like this happened uh, immediately following the birth of Jesus, only we know that's not true. Here's how we know that. Jesus said in his lifetime, Luke chapter 10, verse 18, so he told them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus talks about this as if it's a past reality. How else do we know that this occurred actually a long time before that? Because right at the beginning of creation, who shows up? Satan. Right? So evidently, we don't know when this happened, but evidently it happened before Adam and Eve arrive on the scene. Are, are you tracking with me? 
Right? You, you can't be Satan the great tempter if you're not Satan the great tempter yet. You guys look lost. It's true. Okay. This is not meant to be a timeline. It's meant to be poetic and visual in such a way that we feel the battle. That we feel this dragon waiting to devour this child and we feel the deliverance of our God. David Platt, in commenting on this section, said, The birth of Christ on that day in Bethlehem inaugurated the death of that ancient serpent. Oh, listen to that one more time. The birth of Christ on that day in Bethlehem inaugurated, we got to see it for the first time here on earth, the death of that ancient serpent, just as had been promised back in Genesis 3. Birth of Christ declared the death of the ancient serpent, death of Christ defying the adversary. Oh, the one who would do battle against you, would do battle against Christ, would do battle against the church, has been defeated. And yet there's a very real battle going on right now. Don't miss this. God is allowing it. There is a battle going on, and God is allowing it. So if you look at your Bible, look at at chapter 12, verse 9. Who's fighting? Is it that image that you see if you're on Facebook of Jesus and the devil locked in some arm wrestling match? No, it's Michael. It's an angel and other angels created by God, subservient to God, and Satan and his angels created by God, subservient to God. It's like God is allowing, even facilitating them to fight it out. It's true, as you look at Revelation, it's not a timeline. This is a snapshot, but it's not just one moment in history or the future. This is actually all of human history This has been true. This divine battle for good and evil raging in the heavens. God is allowing his angels, his messenger, the word angel just means messenger, of light to battle against angels of darkness. We should ask ourselves the question, why? We should ask it because when hard times come, when darkness comes into our life, the most common response is to go, why would God allow this? Man, I thought God was in control. I thought God was uh, working all things together for good, and now this happens? Man, I don't know if I can believe. Usually we we don't say that when uh, worldwide injustice happens. It's just when it hits us. It's when it hits our family. When we are the ones who suffer, we say, if God was really in control, he would never allow this. Well, back in May, we were studying through Hebrews. We were in Hebrews chapter 11. This is one of your fill-in-the-blanks for today if you want to grab your bulletin. Why would God do this? Here's the answer. So that he can put his glory on display. Why is God allowing adversity in your life so that he can put his glory on display? Evil gets unmasked for what it was, and the glory of God gets put on display. Why is God allowing struggles in your family right now? So that even in the midst of that, you can trust in Him, and His glory gets put on display. That's the answer to that question. Because here's the reality. When God steps onto that field of battle, it's game over. That's the end. There's no, there's no wrestling. I, I was thinking about this. Anybody else ever play Little League Baseball when you were a kid? Man, I, I grew up in Topeka. And, I mean, Topeka is Topeka, so we, we were never going to win, like, the Little League World Series or anything. But there was a guy. He wasn't one of us, but he's the guy who put all the games together. He's the guy who called the different coaches and called the different towns, and he made the schedule up, and he picked the field where it was going to happen, and then he orchestrated on the day, and the two teams would come together, and living in Topeka, my absolute, I don't remember most of my childhood. Like those of you who know me, I, I'm really super forgetful, and I, a lot of things will be sitting at like Thanksgiving or Christmas, and my brother will say, remember when this happened when we were kids? And I'll be like, nope, doesn't exist. You know what, what? word I remember from being a child, South Milford. I know, it's awful. It's awful. You know why I remember South Milford? Because when we played them in baseball, 
we annihilated them every year. I don't know. I couldn't tell you why. Like, I don't know what led up to that. I can tell you there were, there were games like 18 to 0 and 19 to 1, and we were like, this is glorious, and we are the champions. Like, we didn't, we didn't know why. Somebody else had put the game together, and then we just went and destroyed them. I actually think of that every time I sort of drive through that area. I'm like, yeah. I hope you guys remember. Yeah, here, that was Little League victory, right? Nobody cared about that except the Little Leaguers. Well, and evidently parents who lose their stinking minds at Little League games. But other than that, right, the world doesn't care. You guys were real quiet on that one because that's probably you. Anyways, <laughs> here's what's much better. When that victory is against your arch rival. Oh, man, they're the ones we are gunning for every year. And it's going to be tight. And yet we know that we are going to win, right? Because God especially loves... Notre Dame. Okay, good. So it's how you remember the first five books of the Bible, guys. Don't look at me like that. And yet, how does, how does chapter 12, verse 9 reveal Satan to us as the enemy, as the arch rival? God has literally set him up as the guy who's going to fight and going to lose so that God's glory can be put on display. Listen to me. Jesus will reign. The church will stand Satan will fall. But don't miss it. This fight is real. This battle is very real. Look back at your Bible. Look at verse 10 in Revelation 12. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now. Again, we're not thinking timeline. Right? So this, this now is a, an echoing now. Kind of like when, when God said, Let there be light. And there was light, which is what Genesis tells us, right? And Scientists, physicists today tell us that the universe and the cosmos is still expanding. Still stars coming into being. Because when God speaks, it echoes throughout all of eternity. That's this now. This is, this is an eternal now. Now, the salvation and power and kingdom of our God, the authority of his Christ, have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. They love not their lives, even unto death. It's a very real battle. And yet, here's what it says, verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, rejoice, you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you, and in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. Again, this now is all of human history. As we look back from Genesis to Revelation, here's what we see consistently. The enemy is ticked. Satan is angry. It's described in these verses as having great wrath because he knows his time is short. I want us to just think for just a second, what's the cost of that wrath? Revelation chapter 6 tells us of those who were slain for their faith, who are underneath the throne of God, underneath the altar of God, clothed in white. Hebrews chapter 11, the great faith chapter, tells us of those who by their great faith in God accomplished wonderful things, and others who gave up their lives because of their great faith Christians will lose their lives in this battle. This is a very real battle. Verses 13 through 19, we see this dragon pursuing God's people. Those who keep his commandments, who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And at the same time, we see God protecting his people, sheltering his people. We sang it earlier. This is one of the fill in the blanks. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb, and our faithfulness to the gospel of King Jesus. That's the power of what we cling to. That we don't count on how great and spiritual any of you are. We don't count on how great or spiritual I am, or any other pastor. No, we count on the power of Christ Jesus, our King. On His blood. He's the Lamb of God who His blood was shed to cover our sins. Because we believe that, we are faithful to the gospel. 
Verse 11 says, And they, over, they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives, even unto death. And we go, yeah, that's who we want to be. And yet life hits us, and things get very real, very difficult. So what do we do? Look with me in Ephesians just real quickly. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 and 12. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God, the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand. Christian, there are times where you don't feel like I can't run any farther, and God says, just stand. Stand against, and here it is, the schemes of the devil. That's what we see all throughout this battle in Revelation 12. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. That almost sounds like it's describing Revelation chapter 12. Oh, but how that hits us. In the church, Matt Chandler said this the number one tactic of the enemy to take you from what is yours. What is yours is identity in Christ, belonging to Christ, joy in Christ, joining in Christ with other brothers and sisters. His number one tactic to take you from that and take you completely out of the fight is this accusation. He accuses you, he accuses God, he accuses others, both groups and individuals. He does this to harass, create doubt, division, discord, to dehumanize and destroy. That's the number one tactic of the enemy, and I would say to us, we fall to it all too often. It's like we're just walking with our eyes closed, and we walk right into it. Oh, I would beg us, recognize the devil's schemes. He's basically only got one of them. It's accusation. Accusing God of wrongdoing. Accusing you. Uh, For many of you, he has accused you, he has lied to you, and you have believed it over and over. I've heard so many Christians throughout the years say things like, man, I just can't pray. I, I just can't read my Bible. And yet God has given all that you need for life and godliness in his spirit and in his word Only you've listened to the enemy who says, I can't read this. I can't understand this. Stop falling for his lies and wake up. Stop believing it. I was talking with a friend yesterday. We were just talking about sort of life struggles. And he said something while we were eating breakfast. And I got out my phone. Normally, it's pretty rude while someone's talking. Just get out your phone, start typing, right? So I'm like, I just want you to know what you just said was so good. I'm writing it down. In talking about struggles, and talking about times where we don't know what to do, where we ask God, where do I go? How do I handle this? He said this, God answers through his word. If you're not studying, it may be that you're not getting any answers. If we're not spending time in God's word, we should not be surprised that we don't know God's heart in a situation. That we don't know how to love brothers and sisters or those in the world in a certain situation. We just feel lost. And the answer is stop believing that lie that you can't read God's word and hear God's voice within it. Recognize his schemes. I, I remember when I was a freshman at Taylor University, there were several hundred kids in the auditorium and the the campus pastor was illustrating where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and know me. My sheep will follow me. And he had this, this puppy that he had uh, recently got and was training. And he had somebody bring the dog in all the way at the back of Taylor's Chapel, which I think they've torn down and built a new one. But there's this long line of hundreds and hundreds of kids. And he's like, right back there at the back is this new puppy that we got. And uh, I don't remember exactly how, how he did the illustration, but he did two different things. One was... Real quietly, he got down and began to say the dog's name and say, come here. And that dog took off like a shot 
boom, from the front to the back. He didn't care all the people who were in between. He didn't care what they were doing, what they were saying. He knew his master's voice, and that's where he was heading. And then he did something else, which was uh, he had him bring the dog about into the middle, and I don't remember if he did this first or second. And then rather than talking to the dog like he had done every time when he was training it, he just starts yelling at this dog, and the dog cowered and went down and tried to run inside the aisles to get away and hide. And I would say, church, we're really bad at distinguishing voices. Oh, when Jesus, our good shepherd, calls to us, we have not spent enough time in his word and in the spirit to distinguish that voice and the voice of the enemy. But they sound really different. Their message is really different. One comes with a call to love, confession, repentance, acceptance before the throne of God, brotherhood with brothers and sisters, and the other comes with, as we would expect, accusation. Coldness, anger, separation in our families, in our lives, our jobs, our schools, and even in the church, we've done a really bad job at distinguishing those voices. Why is there division in the church? Even today, why, why are we walking through a difficult time? It's because we listen to the whisper of accusation. Rather than the gospel command of Scripture, which is confess, repent, and forgive. Oh, there's, there's sin all over the place in the church. The fact that you're here. In fact, just look at the person next to you. Just look at them and then say this to them. I'm the problem. Right? It's, not, it's not you. It's me. I'm the problem. Like, there's sin here because I showed up this morning. Where there's sin in the church, here's what we expect from Christians and God's people. Here's the pattern of God's word. Confession, repentance, and forgiveness. Not atonement. Atonement was fulfilled in Christ. And yet, in accusation, we see the exact opposite. You can never atone for what you have done. I want you to pay. I want you to suffer. And I want to suggest as we wrap this up that that is a very first world American privilege. We are lazy. We are spoiled. And we think we are the center of the universe. I want to commend you. In fact, I think it's in your bulletin, in uh, your notes, along with some of those scriptures, uh, a video called Sheep Among Wolves on YouTube. Is that in there? It's the story of uh, the spread and the planting of churches in Iran where it is a crime to spread the gospel. It is a a crime to plant a church. Uh, So through most of the movie, uh, faces are disguised and, and voices are changed. But one of the church planters describes the Western church, that's us, and our model of church planting, our model of what church looks like, he says, he says this, we start with a pastor, we start with a teacher, and then we gather a community around them. You could add to that. We start with a, a youth group. We start with a children's program. Uh, we start with what the worship team sounds like. And then we gather based on how attractive our offering is. So we have this, and this church has that, and this church has that. So we're, we're gathering based on how much we can attract you with how cool our presentation is. So about once a week, they'll show up to hear his speech, and then they'll go home, and then we call that the church. Because that's true, we divide and fight over the stupidest things imaginable. Churches have had church splits over what color the carpet should be, what color the pads over the pews in the old days should be. They have fought and divided and split Because we have not acted like the gospel is what unites us. Like Christ is what unites us. Let me give you a little perspective. In 2021, that's this year, 4,761 of your brothers and sisters in Christ have been murdered for their faith. 4,700 61. And if you tell them that you are ticked off at somebody in the church because of uh, some little thing that happened and you refuse to forgive, can you imagine how their churches would respond to us today? I hope with shame. 
Oh, let us repent and turn to Christ. Here's what he said. It's like the West is under some sort of satanic lullaby. It's as if the great accuser, the great deceiver, the enemy of our soul is just saying to you, shh, go back to sleep. Anytime you get stirred up in your spirit, anytime anybody offends you, we quickly cut them off. There's a million churches to choose from, so you leave one, you go to another, and he goes, shh, go back to sleep. Here's what he said. If you start a church, you might make disciples. But if you make disciples, you'll have a church. They don't, they don't start with a building. They don't start with a pastor. In fact, their model, this may just explode your brain, so I'll warn you before you watch it, is they start uh, with non-Christians discipling other non-Christians. Because the whole thing is a journey towards Christ. Here's, here's how we're moving towards Christ, discovering Christ together. And then you get plugged in with other brothers and sisters, and all of a sudden you have uh, one of the greatest revivals going on in the earth is in Iran right now. Churches exploding because true disciples have been made. You know what grieves my heart? We can do uh, church as we have done it for, well, I think it was 1987 that Dad started this church. And you can come your whole life and never be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You can be super faithful on a Sunday. We all go, that's not going to be me. I'm not going to be the one taken out. I'm not going to be the one who's tricked to sleep. I'm not going to be the one that the accuser lies to me. Especially since Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 tells us that Jesus came to destroy death, destroy Satan, and free us from slavery to sin. Yeah, I, I see it going on in other people, but I'll recognize the true attack when it comes. Let me quote the great theologian Mike Tyson. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Oh, man, I'm committed to you, brothers and sisters. I'm committed to the church. I'm committed to the gospel. I'm committed to God's word until something punches us in the face and we're like, screw you guys, I'm out of here. I would love to use stronger language, but I won't do it, mostly because I don't use that stronger language. I want to say that as strong as I can. This is the extravagant middle finger to your brothers and sisters in the love of Jesus. Are you tracking with me? This is the most repulsive thing you could ever imagine because it is the opposite of the gospel. Is there sin in the church? Man, I hope so because that means there's living, breathing Christians there. You know where there's no sin? Where everyone is dead. They've all been made saints. We should expect our world to get rocked from time to time and we should expect to confront them in love and to forgive them in Christ. read another quote that said this, if you begin with hypocrisy, you will end up in apostasy. That should keep us from sleeping at night. Matt Chandler, again, said this, Sunday morning attendance will not be enough for this fight that we're in. It's not enough. I'm glad you're here. We're super glad you're here. I mean, we try and put everything together uh, so that you have a decent experience on a Sunday morning, and there's coffee in the hallway, and I actually saw a study one time that, that said that they did this thing. People were getting on and off of an elevator, and as they were going up for, I think it was a job interview, they would either hand them a cup of warm, uh, like coffee, or something cold. Those who were handed something cold, by the time they uh, went through the interview and then did the exit interview, they said, oh, the person was cold and distracted. I didn't really connect with them. The ones who had something hot in their hands said, no, they were a really warm person, and I felt connected with them. We are silly creatures. That's not what church is about. We've been joined in Christ. And I, I just, I want to just be super, like, gut-level honest here. I think we've been playing at church for a while. I think we've been playing at fellowship. We have definitely been playing at discipleship. What it means to be united as brothers and sisters in Christ even though the whole time we have a very real enemy, a dragon. First Peter 5.8 describes him as a roaring lion seeking those who he may devour. And his 
goal, his desire is to destroy us. I got a bunch more stuff here. We don't have time to get to it. Here's what I want to call us to do. Rather than going with the flow. I mean, we got a plan. This is what what it looks like for me to be a Christian until I get punched in the face. Man, let's set our hearts right now. This is what it looks like for me to walk as brothers and sisters. I had two people this week get a hold of me, and they both said this. I've been hearing a lot of rumors going along. And here's what I want to do. I want to get together. I want to talk with you. I want to get right to the bottom of what's going on uh, because I want to know how to rightly respond. And I, if I could just say, well done. That's what brothers and sisters in Christ do. If you came to me right now and, and said, listen, I've just heard something horrible about your brother Jason over at Maple Grove. I, I, I heard horrible of something he's doing, something he's saying, something he's teaching, something he's living. You know what I would do? If it's serious enough, I would stop what I'm doing right now and I would go to him and I would have a conversation because I love him. And I don't care how he responds to that conversation. Like, I, I care how he responds. But you can get mad at me all day long. I love you too much to not say anything. We dare not pretend to love each other and then not say anything. It will, it will divide us. Are, are you you want to write that down? It will divide us. I promise you. That's the scheme of the enemy. Right now, we, we're looking across the ring at Mike Tyson, who just jacked us with an uppercut. And we're going, oh, that was the scheme the whole time. I never saw it coming. What's the purpose of this moment that God might put his glory on display? As Christians love as Christians encourage, as Christians admonish. We talked about that in the adult Sunday school this morning. As Christians forgive, as Christians walk in humility with one another. The enemy's desire is to destroy you. Oh, Christian, hide yourself in the rock of Christ. Worship team, come on up. Here's the last scripture we're going to read. Turn with me to Psalm 140. Just in case you think, you know what? That Matt guy gets a little worked up. He kind of overstates it a little bit. Like, seriously, I, I, was, I was putting this together and then envisioning people going home. After calling people to walk in humility, confession, repentance, forgiveness with one another, doing the opposite and going, that guy's a jerk. So I would like you to go home and read Psalm 140 for yourself. and See the extent to which God says, I'm going to deal with division. I'm going to deal with violence against my people. We, if you read Revelation 12 again, you're going to see God's providence, God's protection, God's provision. But listen to these verses. Verse 7. This should be our cry. This is our prayer. O Lord, my Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. Verse 12 says, for I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted. You can read that two ways. Number one, When you are feeling afflicted, God will preserve, God will protect you. He will maintain your cause. Here's the other one. Sometimes we get all bent out of shape because we take up the cause of somebody else. We're like, I will champion your cause. I'm willing to kill as many Christians as possible to see that you are maintained. I don't care which way you read it. God's the one who does the preserving. God does the maintaining the cause of the afflicted. He will execute justice for the needy. Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall do what? Dwell in his presence. Let me just, let me ask you to take a little evaluation of your heart. At some point, we've all walked through these difficult waters. When you're going through that place where you are just ticked at another brother and sister, how much do you feel like dwelling in the presence of God? How much do you feel like dwelling even in the presence of other Christians in church? I mean, it would be like Saturday night, and you're like, I think I have a fever. Man, I hope I have a fever. That should tell us on which side of the battle lines we actually stand. Here's what we see. The righteous shall give thanks to your name, and the upright shall dwell in your presence. Stand with me. We're going to close by taking communion together. And I want to call us 
as Christians, not as perfect men and women, not as sinless men and women, as Christians, to examine our heart, confess our sin before God, and then come to the table. Come to the table and be reminded that we're actually united. We have communion one with another in Christ. And that's it. We may have other things that we agree on. Many of you could point to friends that you've had in the past, close friends, intimate friends that you drew strength and fellowship from, and then for one reason or another, whether it's sickness and death or even just as simple as they moved away, you've lost touch with them. That precious communion can be separated, and yet what is it that truly unites us? Is it that we all are on the same political team or we cheer for the same sports team? No, it's Christ. That's why we're coming to this table, and that's why as you examine your heart, if you realize that you have something against another person, confess it right now. Repent of it. Repent for holding against them what God has not held against them. Oh, they are a wicked sinner. You got that part exactly right. And God nailed every bit of that to the cross in Christ and has given them his righteousness. You dare not be a higher judge than God himself. Let's stand for a moment. And then as we sing, you can come from the front, take the elements, and let's hide ourselves in the secret place of God. Thanks for joining our podcast. We pray that God would bless you and strengthen you through his word. If you'd like to find out more about EWC or give tithes and offerings in support of this ministry, visit our website at edenworshipcenter.co.